Good morning, UBC. Man, I have missed you all. It is so good to be home. Uh, We have missed you all, and I use the word we intentionally because I speak on behalf of my entire family when I say that uh, we've missed uh, worshiping alongside you and just serving alongside you, and it is great to be back. If you're a guest or you're a visitor, uh, part of what I'm referring to is the fact that for the last month or so, my family, we were on sabbatical, And, and it was a great opportunity for us and a great experience for us. And, and I really kind of want to take the, the first part of this message to do a little bit of a report on what we were able to, to do and focus in on over the last month or so. But it's also going to serve as, as kind of the primary focus of our message this morning as well as we give greater exploration into what does it mean for us to truly remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, and so let me just begin by telling you that this, the sabbatical for us and for my family came at a great time. I've been in full-time ministry for almost 11 years at this point, never had a sabbatical, and, and it was very timely. And I really wanted to steward it well. I really wanted to be uh, intentional with that time. And so I remember talking about it a little bit with my wife and, and really even with the personnel committee about some of the things that we hoped to accomplish during this time. And, and so some of the things that we talked about were... Um, personal just rejuvenation, right? My own personal relationship with the Lord. That was definitely one of the things that, that I wanted to focus in on over this last month. And, and I, I've, I've tried to think of the best way to explain what it's like to have this, this rhythm and this pace in ministry, and specifically with, with pastoring. It, it's unlike any other rhythm or pace that I've ever experienced. And so the best, I guess, analogy that I could come up with is, you, you, remember, like, you remember when you were in school and you had an assignment due? Right? Like, let's say you had a paper that you had to turn in, and it kind of created that burden, you know, like that nagging feeling in the back of your mind. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't know what I'm talking about, then there's a great chance you come from the like whole D's equals degree school of philosophy with your education, and that's okay, right? But for most students, right, there is this nagging sense, I've got something to do. And so it would be very difficult because you'd have people come up to you and say, hey, we're going to go out to eat. We're going to go to a movie. And if you went, you felt guilty because you knew you had something to do. And if you didn't go, you felt bad because you felt like you were missing out. And so you constantly looked forward to turning in that paper, right? And, and you found this tremendous sense of relief. You're like, okay, I got it turned in. Finally, I can rest. That's the best way I can describe what it's like to preach every week minus the sense of relief, okay? Because as soon as you turn in a paper, guess what? Another one's due, and then another one's due. My, my former pastor used to refer to it as the relentless return of the Sabbath, and, and it just creates a pace to life. Now listen, I love it. Uh, I feel called to it. I love the way it compels me to be in God's word, to study his word, to the, the way it challenges me to share his word. It holds me accountable, <clears throat> but I will tell you, I'll be the first to admit, it, it comes with a certain level of mental exhaustion and, and emotional exhaustion. And so I, I needed it. And, and so part of what I wanted to do was just listen to the Lord um, and, and not have to listen with a lens of, do I need to share this? How do I need to share it? What does this mean for us? But just to be uh, alone with the Lord. That was definitely one of my objectives, and it was very fulfilling. In addition to that, uh, I wanted uh, enrichment within my marriage. Uh, some of you are aware of this, but in a couple of weeks, Jennifer and I will celebrate 15 years uh, of our, that's right, we got a little fist pump down here in the front row. Uh, that's good, right? If you're getting a fist pump from your wife 15 years in, you're doing all right. And so uh, we get to celebrate that. We've gone through so many milestones together. Uh, I love her so much. She, she's such a, an important role in my life and such a bedrock for our family. And so we wanted to carve out time for each other. Uh, it never feels like enough, 
there, there's always you know, this sense of, well, we wish we had more. Uh, but it was still really great. There, there were some moments where we looked at the kids and we were like, see ya. And it was just the two of us. And some other nights, we had to wait until they were in bed, and, and then we could stay up late and talk. Uh, but that was definitely a huge focal point for us, to spend that time together. But she and I would also be the first to tell you that we knew that it wasn't just us, uh, that we wanted to extend this sabbatical and this rest to, to our children. Um, and on October 31st of this previous year, we were matched with our youngest son, David Wu, who we adopted from China. And really, since that time, life has been a bit of a whirlwind, and it has just been one thing to the next. And, and I know that it didn't just impact me, or not just Jennifer, uh, but it impacted James and Annabelle, and obviously Wu as well. And so we wanted to just spend time together as a family, and just enjoy each other and build memories, and we did. I uh, did a lot of travel, had a chance to go visit grandparents up in Oklahoma in an Abilene, which was great. Uh, snuck in a personal trip to Colorado, which was incredible. And in fact, I, I could probably just go ahead and share this now. One of the things that I'm feeling led to, I'm not sure if it's the Holy Spirit, but I'm definitely leading uh, towards considering a church plant in Colorado, okay? Uh, and if I need to dedicate, I don't know, like a year to explore that, especially ministry opportunities in the river rafting communities, like I'm willing to make that sacrifice. I mean, I will do that. It, it was incredible. It was a great experience there. And we had some wonderful memories that we were able to foster. And, and so I share that with you, not just to report, but also hopefully as a word of encouragement that I hope and expect that for you as well. Uh, that, that you would take intentional seasons of your life and pour into the relationships that matter the most, right? Your relationship with Christ, uh, your relationship with the people that are closest to you, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, whether it's a sibling, a, a parent, whatever it is, but take those times and personally invest them. We, we're called to do that. I believe that's taught in the scriptures. It, it's what God desires in us. And so I, it was so fulfilling for us. I desire it for you as well. Uh, it was not just about those uh, seasons of enrichment. It was also steady and work. Um, there was a lot of things that I was able to focus in on, things that I don't always get a chance to focus in on on a regular work week. Uh, had a chance to, to look at kind of the future. That was a big focus for me was looking beyond uh, kind of our present season, but looking even five years down the line, what are we hoping for and praying for? Uh, had a chance to plan kind of some of the stuff for 2020 uh, that we're anticipating. And I would tell you that anytime we look towards the future, I always want you to know that we hold those things loosely here. Uh, I always want us to be a church that's sensitive to the spirit and in a, in a moment's notice, we can go where God leads us. Uh, but at the same time, I want us to have direction, right? I want us to have focus. We did a lot of road trips this last month, and the worst thing is being on a road trip where you don't know where it's going or, or when it's going to end. And so part of the planning is just saying, here's, here's the direction we want to go. Here's something we want to pursue. And so I had a lot of, chance, a lot of time to, to pray through that, consider those things. I'm excited about some of those things that I was able to come across. I uh, spent a lot of time researching discipleship, recovery, justice, things you've heard me talk about before. You're going to hear a lot more of that come this fall, so I'll save those things uh, uh, for another time. Um, but then I also wanted exposure. In addition to study, I wanted exposure. We, we wanted to go to different churches uh, and churches that were not like the one that we see all the time. So we went to a lot of different denominations, a lot of different expressions, and it was so great uh, to see that. I, as a former missions pastor, I'm a strong advocate for that philosophy that one who knows one culture knows no culture. 
And it was so cool to see the diversity of the body of Christ and the many ways that people worship and fellowship together. That was, that was great. I, I wanted exposure in what I was reading. Um, I, I had four different books that I had on my list that were at the top of my list for the month. Uh, and what was interesting is that I actually chose them thinking they would deal with different topics and different subjects. And in many respects, they did. But what was so fascinating was that they all actually made the same primary argument and idea. And so I will tell you that in addition to the prayer and all this other stuff, I've walked away from this time with a very clear message from the Lord. Um, I'm still processing what it means (laughs) and what to do with it and what it's going to look like for us, but uh, he spoke in a profound way, in a meaningful way, and I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to serve the God of creation. I'm excited to find one might find myself in this, this throng of, of saints that lay loyalty to King Jesus. Um, and I'm excited for what it means for us in our future. And so it was a great month. But really what I want you to hear me say first and foremost is thank you. Uh, thank you to the staff. Uh, this is my first time to see many of you. And, and so I'm so grateful that this church has a wonderful staff that I knew would lead incredibly well in my absence. They ripped up the parking lot while I was gone, but they've led incredibly well uh, in my absence. Uh, grateful for the staff. Grateful for those that, that filled in here on Sunday morning. Thank you to Warren and to Kevin and to Brian and to Chris. I had a chance to listen to y'all's messages, and, and I was blessed by them, as I know so many of you others that were here those days were as well. Uh, but thank you to the congregation. It is not lost on me or my family uh, that everything we just experienced would not be possible without your support. And so we are truly grateful. Uh, But I have missed praying alongside you all and praying with you all. And so as we prepare to open God's word together, uh, let's go to him in prayer and ask him to bless our time. Father in heaven, we do love you. And it is so great to be here amongst family, brothers and sisters that, that we labor with day in and day out. And I ask now, God, that as we come before your throne and we sit here in this sanctuary, God, that your presence would truly just invade our lives and overwhelm us and stir us, God. Let us, let us fall in love with you to new heights and new depths. Let us grow in our understanding of what it means to truly rest in you and find all the purpose that comes through this Sabbath rhythm that you've created. Uh, so open your word now, Father, to our hearts and our minds that we would serve you more fully in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Now, one of the things that I discovered over the course of my time of the sabbatical, that a sabbatical is a bit of an oddity for our culture, okay? Um, and you see this, and you're reminded of this in a lot of different ways. You, you ever been in those situations where you see someone that just feels out of place, right? Like you're in a certain setting or, or circumstance uh, where you're just like thinking to yourself, what, what are they doing here? It'd be like running into your parents at a concert of one of your favorite bands, or like you see kids wandering the halls or the streets in the middle of a school day, and you're like, what are they doing? Um, or, or maybe you're the person, right, that everybody's looking at you that way. You've been to that party, and you can almost see the expressions on other people's faces like, who invited them, right? They shouldn't be here. And all of a sudden, you feel like you need to justify your presence. There's a lot of that that comes when you're on sabbatical. Right, like there'd be all these moments where I'd be with my kids uh, at the library on a Tuesday at ten, and I'd be hanging out, and you could almost just see people trying to figure me out. You know, sitting there going, "What's this guy's story? Is he on vacation? Unemployed? Stay-at-home dad?" Right, like they're just—I felt out of place at different moments. In fact, even just this past week, uh, we had the solicitor going around 
in our neighborhood trying to sell people on like pest control products or something. I'm not really sure. And, and so it was like Wednesday at three and I was sitting in the driveway watching my children play with their friends and he came walking up and, and when he saw that it was me, it's almost like it startled him and he kind of stopped right at the edge of the driveway and he said hello, but his expression was really like, what are you doing here? You know, and, and I responded with hello, but my expression was like, uh, I live here and we're not interested, right? But Jesus loves you. I threw that expression on as well. And, and so you constantly feel a little bit out of place. So you end up telling people about the sabbatical. But then even when you begin to explain sabbatical, a lot of people don't really grasp the concept. And so they kind of think you just have this month-long vacation. And, and you almost feel judged at moments, like they're picturing you staying in your pajamas until three and watching movies all night. And you're like, look, I'm out of my pajamas at least by lunchtime, right? I mean, give me a little bit more credit than that. And so I'm constantly having to explain and, and, and kind of uh, uh, articulate this concept of a sabbatical during this past month. And what it showed me is that part of the reason it feels so odd is because our culture and our society doesn't really know how to rest, right? And, and that's kind of an opening question. I don't, I don't need you to raise hands or anything, but let me ask you, do you feel like you know what it means to rest well? And, and I would imagine that most of us would say no, right? Because we live in a society that is filled with hyperactivity, Right, right, constant uh, options and things to do, so much so that whenever we don't have something to do, we feel as if we should have something to do. You know, one of the greatest litmus tests to determine whether or not you can rest well is how many times do you come back from vacation and you're exhausted, right? Man, just got back from Disney and I am worn out, right? Like, like we don't know how to rest well. And why is that? And, and I knew that was true for me. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was to really be intentional with this, to go, what, what does God desire with the Sabbath? How, how do I rest well? And so one of the things that I did, the first book that I read at the beginning of my sabbatical was this great book called Sabbath as Resistance by Walter Brueggemann, uh, Saying No to the Culture of Now. It was a great book. Highly recommend it. If you're a Sunday Connect leader and you're looking for something to teach in the fall, this is a great option for you. It's got a study guide in the back, uh, very thought-provoking, very, very rooted in Scripture, and, and I read it, and I realized that I had such a limited understanding and scope of Sabbath, that, that my understanding of Sabbath really kind of on the surface was this elementary understanding that God creates the world, and then he rests. And so he's created us with a similar pattern, that we should work, and then we need to rest. And this is a discipline for our own benefit and for our own health. And while there's truth to that, there is so much more. And that's what I want us to look at today. So let, let's pick up in Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. And we'll read this and we'll explore a greater understanding of the Sabbath. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so one of the first things that I want to point out, this is, is coming in the midst of a famous portion of Scripture where we get the Ten Commandments, right? And so it's easy for us to, to view this as kind of a, uh, a childhood story where you get your list of do's and don'ts, right? You get your kind of list, and, and remembering the Sabbath just kind of falls in that list. And it's, it's one of the many that we need to remember. 
And, and that's kind of how I'd approached it in many respects. But what Brueggemann pointed out, and, and I should just go ahead and give him credit for so much of what we're going to discuss uh, this, after, or this morning. I'll try to cite him as best I can. Um, it, but what he points out here is that the positioning of this fourth commandment is really unique. And that in many ways, it serves as a bridge for every other thing that you see in this section. That it, it helps us look back to commandments one through three. And then it also helps us look forward to commandments five through ten. And so I want to explain to you how that kind of works, right? The, the first thing that he's trying to point out is that when you look at for the first three commandments, what do we see? These are three commandments that focus specifically on God, right? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. You shall not have a graven image. Don't use my name in vain. It's all about God. And, and so the Sabbath is, is kind of pointing back to this God that comes in a stark contrast to the gods of this ancient time that these people who are receiving these commandments would have been knowing and would have been familiar with, right? So, so what we're seeing here is that these commandments don't just happen in a vacuum, right? This is a part of a narrative, and I want us to be mindful of this narrative to see the weight of this fourth commandment, right? What we're talking about here is the Exodus. We're talking about a people that have just been brought up out of Egypt, who have just been set free from Pharaoh's rule. And so, so much of what we're seeing in these commandments is a juxtaposition and a contrast between God and the society he wants to create versus Pharaoh and the worldview and society that all these folks had been accustomed to. And so what we see is that this is not just a response to my personal reaction to God. This is not just a personal discipline I need to have. This is a statement about society as a whole and, and how God wants us to relate to one another. So, so think with me for a moment about Pharaoh and about Egypt, and how that society functioned, and, and not just Pharaoh doing Moses' day, but all the different things that we can see about this position and this, this level of authority that we see in Genesis and in Joseph's interactions with them. And part of what we see is that ultimately Pharaoh maintained ultimate authority and control, correct? Right? He, he, he had the ultimate control over this society. In many ways, he was deified. Right? He, he was worshipped. He was seen as supreme. And so he had this absolute control and as a result with that sort of power, his motivations were often driven by greed, right? I, I've accumulated all this status. I've accumulated all this wealth, and I want more. I want to expand the empire. I want to expand our influence. I want to expand my wealth. And so part of his motivation was greed. But interestingly enough, as we read through the scriptures, we see that Pharaoh was not immune to anxiety, right? That there was these, this fear that he could lose this power, lose this control at any moment, Right? You have these nightmares that plague Pharaoh during Joseph's days, right? And, and he's trying to understand what it means, these dreams of seven lean and seven skinny, and what, what are we supposed to do? And, and in that interpretation, there's this fear of not just anxiety, but of scarcity, right? That you're going to have seven good years, but then you're going to have years where you don't have anything. And so here you have this individual who sits there at the peak of this power, right? With all this greed, all this control, but there's this anxiety that at any moment it could be gone. I could lose it, and so I need to hoard more. I need to control more to make sure that we can sustain ourselves through those seasons. And so he's also driven by anxiety. And so what happens in that sort of system and, and in that sort of mentality of scarcity is oppression. Right in Exodus 1, what do we see? We see Pharaoh look down on the Hebrews, and what does he see? He sees them as a threat. Here's a people that could rally against us and take all this away. So I'm going to oppress them. Right? It's a destruction of relationship. It, it, it leads to, to violence, and it leads to a breakdown of fidelity that was really designed by God. And so you have this system that, that created 
endless productivity, endless work, always trying to fuel this machine that ultimately protected those that were at the top of this pyramid. And all of a sudden, these people are brought out of that, set free from that, and they're told that this God, that now they have been rescued by, is a God of rest. You've been in a society of restlessness. Now, restfulness will be what determines your rhythm. We see that God is so different than Pharaoh. He, he doesn't demand endless work hours. He trusts in the sufficiency of his creation. He is not moved by anxiety. He is not worried about losing power, dominion, or control. And so he commands rest. It's a very different way of life. And it's one that we need to be mindful of because when we look at the example of Egypt, we see that it does, in fact, become emblematic of a society that we see today that tends to function by similar motivations and can create similar levels of bondage, a society that is driven by production and consumption all the time. Right? I mean, think, think about how this works for us. I love this quote that Brueggemann puts together. He, he traces it back to uh, some roots in the Enlightenment, and this kind of helps set the tone of how we can dive into this. Now, as I read this, I, I want us to take an, an analysis of our culture today that, that kind of leads us away from restlessness by kind of starting at a high-level view and then getting a little bit closer into how we see it in the church, and then I'll even offer a testimony of how it's impacted me personally. But, but here's how Brueggemann sets the tone. He says, perhaps such restlessness is rooted in the enlightenment discovery of the individual and an emergent ideology and individualism that cuts us off from the buoyant sustenance of community and tradition. In that ideology, one is not only free to secure one's own future without answering to any other, one is also required to secure one's own future because the laissez-faire economics mandates that one must sink or swim by one's own effort, and it is never enough to simply tread water. This creates a contemporary circumstance in our society that generates an endless pursuit of greater security and greater happiness, a pursuit that is always unsatisfied because we have never gotten or done enough yet. The gods of this system are the gods of market ideology that summon to endless desires and needs that are never met but always require yet greater effort. So what Brueggemann is saying is, you and I, we live in this culture of hyper-individualism. And, and the news there is that, guess what? You have the autonomy, you have the authority, the power, the control to secure your future. You answer to no one. Right, And so we, we embrace that, and it feels good on the surface. Right, We have the freedom to secure our own future, but he says it's not just freedom, you're required. Because in this sort of system, it's sink or swim. And so if, if you just try to get by, it, it's not enough just to tread water. And so what happens? We now find ourselves in the society of these endless messages that there's this endless pursuit of happiness. There's always one more thing that you could have that will make you happy. You just need to work. So he be harder. And that's the sort of system that we fall victim to. And so he begins to analyze how this works it out in different areas of our society. He looks at advertising, for example. Think about the messages of so many different corporations, right? There's always one more product that you need, one more thing that you should own, one more thing that you should buy that will make you happier. And if you already have this product, guess what? It's out of date. There's a newer model. There's a newer design. There's newer software. You, your happiness is still limited if you stay where you are. And so the messaging that we find over and over again is that you need one more thing to pursue this happiness. And so what does that do? It creates a society of haves and have-nots. And everybody wants to be a have. 
We don't want to be a have-not. And so this begins to trickle down to so many other elements of society. It impacts our, our parenting. It impacts education, right? Because now we want to make sure our children can be, quote-unquote, successful, right? That they can position themselves to secure their future, to get their happiness, to get whatever they need to acquire. And so we know that they're going to have to be in certain institutions, have certain degrees to do that. So they better test well. Let's teach them to test Let's make sure their scores are good because that's going to be what allows them to get into those universities. But here's the problem. Universities want more than just test scores, right? Now you've got to have this extracurricular resume that is also mind-blowing. And so now we need to fill them up with activities after activities. They can't just be in one. No, they've got to be in piano. They've got to be in soccer. They've got to be in art. They've got to go to church. And all the times, parents begin to just show for these kids around from one activity to the next to build these qualifying marks to make sure that they're on the path to success so they can have and not be in the have-nots. And it's a rat race of endless production, endless consumption. And so all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a society where those people are successful at it, Right, and they, they arrive at certain positions of autonomy, certain positions of power, maybe as CEOs, maybe as government officials, and all of a sudden, the rest of our system begins to protect those at the top. And we begin to reflect this ancient pyramid of Egypt, certain rules, certain regulations that secure the status of the elite, making sure they don't lose their place in office or lose their position or they get the right bonuses and all these different things, right? And we build this structure that supports it. And then as a nation... We enjoy this prosperity, we enjoy this acquisition, we enjoy all these things, and so what do we do? Well, now, now we're worried. If it's not greed, now we're, we're anxious. What if somebody else comes along and takes it from us? So we better have the right defense, we better have the right borders, we better have the right security, and let's make sure we have the right resources. Do we have enough oil to sustain this infrastructure? Do we have enough that we need in case something happens? And we begin to live in this restless society just like Egypt. We see it across the board. This is the message that is constantly around us and why you and I struggle to rest well. And it impacts the church, right? If you think about the church, there's this fine line of like faith and deeds, right? Obviously, we want to adhere to the teaching in James that, that our faith has to be able to manifest itself through action. But if we're not careful, we can fall into the ditch that we haven't worked hard enough, right? That, that salvation is still something that we kind of earn, that we got to please God, then as a result, we feel guilty because there's always one more soup kitchen, one more person we could have evangelized, one more thing we could have gone to at church, and we wear ourselves out. And churches look at folks that visit as commodities, commodities to acquire, commodities to grow, budgets to increase, and so we just participate in this rat race of consumption. Let me tell you how it's impacted me. Um, after Easter, the week after Easter, I was exhausted. Uh, you know how you hit those moments where you can just feel your tiredness? That's how I was that week after Easter. And I remember even thinking, like, why was that? Um, because, I mean, you all know, I mean, Easter's a big deal, but it's not like we have eight additional services. You know I mean? Like, it, it's kind of a standard weekend outside of a Good Friday service. And so I was sitting there going, why, why am I so tired? Man, I am tired. And, and I think looking back, part of what I had to recognize is that really since the end of October, I had just gone from one emotional mountain to the next. Okay, we got matched. How are we going to get to China? Okay, we're in China. How are we going to adjust? Okay, now we're back home. Let's get through the surgery. Okay, now we've got Easter. And it was, it was finally a moment that felt like, okay, that's the last mountain for a while. And I, and I just felt exhausted. Um, my wife could see it. 
and she talked to me about it. And, and I, you know, I mean, I figured she could see it because I live with her, but I even realized that other people were noticing it as well. I was at this benefit dinner for Traffic 911, and, and I ran into the friend of mine who I just sporadically see like once every three months, but every time I do, he's got like a word from the Lord that totally convicts me or something. I don't know how he does it, but I saw him there, and we were talking at the end of the dinner, and he kind of looked at me and goes, you all right? And, and I was like, well, yeah, I'm good. He goes, yeah, you just seem a little different. And I said, well, it's interesting you say that because I am tired. You know, I just, I find myself being really exhausted during this season, and, and I said, I can't really figure out why. And it led us into a conversation about how we rest. And, and part of what I told him in there is I said, you know, when, one of the things for me is that when I have time off, I like to be productive. I think it's kind of how I said it. And I said, so like, it's hard for me to relax if there are things that are left undone, right? Like if there's still laundry, if there's dishes, if there's chore, like I, I need to do those things before I can truly just rest. Or even if I'm resting, I feel like I'm thinking about all the things that need to be done. So I do struggle with this. And he listened and then he kind of just spoke back and he said, you know, it's interesting how much of what we consider to be productive is really about control. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? And he said, well, think about like farmers, you know, generations ago uh, that didn't have electricity. He said, even the fact that we can turn on and off a light demonstrates control, that we can now control the rhythms of what we consider our hours of productivity. He said, but back in the day, sun goes down, day's over. You, you don't have that control. You don't have that sort of power. He said, think about how they would plant their crops and literally have to pray for rain. They didn't have the technology to guarantee that crops would be water. He said, technology has given us all this advancement to maintain this connectivity, maintain this control. He said, maybe what you're wrestling with is the fact that you're not willing to just let go of control and just trust in the Lord. And I was like, who invited you to this benefit dinner, man? Right? I was like, where am I? But, but it stuck with me. And I wonder if it resonates with you, right? That whether it's through what you're experiencing in society, in church, or on a personal level, we find ourselves caught up in this restlessness of this world. And it's there that God comes in and says, let my people go. You will rest. And that's the voice that we need to hear. That's the voice that we need to follow. Now, now think about the ramifications of it. Here's why it becomes so important. When we find ourselves in a society that is driven by productivity and consumption, guess what happens? It's the breakdown of the neighbor. That's what happens. All of a sudden, people are seen not in a relational investment, but as a competitor, a rival, or a threat. Right? Think about it on its best case scenario. Right, in a best case scenario in a society that's driven by production, we have friends, right? friends that we long to be with, that we enjoy their company, but at some level we still compare ourselves to them, don't we? Right? Well, they, they've got the house that I want, they've got the neighborhood that I want, or maybe we feel better than others because, well, look at us, we're a little bit more successful than them, and, and there's still a level of com competition and rivalry at its best. At its worst, we see people as threats and it ends in violence, right? All of a sudden, these people, these others, threaten what is rightfully mine. And so I'm gonna do everything I can to keep them out. And if they don't stay out, I'm gonna defend it. I'm gonna fight against it, and it ends in violence. We see that all the time, saw it this week. 
It's the breakdown of the neighbor. And what we see embedded here in this commandment in Exodus 8, chapter, or chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, is that this is actually about community. This command is for you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your animals, and yes, even the foreigner among you. When you give yourself to endless productivity and consumption, other people become rivals, competitors, and threats, but God is saying rest and redirect that energy to the other. Commandments 5 through 10 are about the other. Other people in your life, whether it's your parents, your spouse, or your neighbor. Don't steal, don't murder, don't lie, don't covet. It's how you treat the other. And so what God is saying, this is the society that you should be defined by. The one that is mindful of the neighbor. And that's why this becomes so important. And so let me close with this, okay? Let me hit several things that I want us to, to wrestle with in terms of the Sabbath, that, that Sabbath has to be more than just rest. It is more than just a call for you to, to find a moment to relax. Sabbath is, number one, about freedom, right? God has set us free from the restlessness that can so easily ensnare and enslave. This is the moment where we get to remember, we get to sing and dance because our God has set us free. He is emancipating God. And he gives us that sort of freedom. Sabbath number two is about sufficiency. One of my favorite stories that you find leading up to the Ten Commandments is right after they're brought up out of Egypt, they're, they're, they're getting uh, uh, started on their journey and all of a sudden they get the manna and the quail. You remember this? I love this, right? Because what does God say? He goes, get what you need just for one day. Try to get more. Try, try to live by greed. Try to live by anxiety. Try to live with a fear of scarcity and it won't be there for you in the morning. And it wouldn't, right? It would be filled with maggots and all this other stuff. Just get today. And on the sixth day, gather enough for two because I don't want you to work on the Sabbath. I want you to rest. Even there. And so people truly had to test and try the sufficiency of, of, of God and his provision. It was truly an Old Testament story of don't worry. Don't be anxious about what you eat or what you drink. Seek me first. All these things will be given to you. The Sabbath is a reminder. I don't need to acquire more. God is sufficient, and that's the statement we make when we rest well. Sabbath is about remembering, right? And one of the things that you see when, when this commandment is, is revisited in Deuteronomy, right, as they're beginning to enter the promised land, is it's almost like this warning that, that is being discussed in the scriptures that be careful, this land is going to be so fruitful and so productive and such a blessing to you that you're going to benefit from it and you're going to acquire more and more. Don't fall back into that trap of production and consumption, Remember what I brought you out of. Remember how I brought you up out of that. I want you to rest. Sabbath is about equality, right? It is for the son, the daughter, the male and female servant, even the foreigner among you. When we commit ourselves to a lifestyle of production, there's always gonna be haves and have-nots. But in resting, we see that everyone is of equal worth, equal value. Everyone deserves rest. Uh, the Sabbath is not just about um, uh, the, the equality, it's also about focus, right? When we live in this endless mindset of productivity, we are constantly trying to multitask and do more. It's, it's this desire to extend ourselves to be more than what we're really capable of being. And so the Sabbath says, stop. Don't be a divided person. Devote your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole life to me. It, it's, it's also 
The Sabbath is not just about focus, it's about our desires. It's an opportunity to remember that we are here to receive the Lord's provision. He has given us a gift. He's given us himself. And so it's not about what I can produce. It's not about what I can can consume. It's about trusting in the gift that God has given me and letting that be the only desire of my heart. And when we do these things, we see that Sabbath is a stance of resistance. It helps us look different as a community of faith. It helps us look different as a people when we don't give in to this culture of endless productivity and consumption. And then finally, if we do all those things, we see that Sabbath transforms. I love the way the Brueggemann says it. He says it's not just a pause that refreshes, it's a pause that transforms. And so let, let me ask you, church, is this you? You come in here today burdened, weary, Is this something that you find yourself listening to? You have the voice of this restless culture and the voice of a God of rest. Where's your energy? Is it towards producing, consuming, achieving, or is it towards the neighbor and trust and rest? If, If you are those who consider yourself to be weary and burdened today, let me remind you of this voice that extends well beyond Sinai and transforms into the voice of our Savior and our King. He says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. And in Jesus, we find the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises that the Sabbath point to. That Jesus, we find ultimate freedom. Right? We, we find in Jesus not just a freedom from some society or from some economic system. We find freedom from sin and death. In Jesus, we find ultimate sufficiency. We can try to satisfy our desires and all these other things in the world, but it is only Jesus who will satisfy. In Jesus, we find the ultimate reminder. Take this bread, take this cup, do this in remembrance of me, and we never forget the cross and we never forget the resurrection. In Jesus, we find ultimate equality. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free, all or one in Jesus Christ. We find ultimate focus. We need nothing else. We need to pursue nothing else. We find he is our only desire. We find that he is the one that allows us to stand resistant to the forces of evil that so consistently bombard us. We find that it is Jesus who ultimately transforms us because in him, the old is gone and the new has come. And so hear his words today, church. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. And hear your Savior say, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so much. And we ask, God, that on a day like today, that we would find a measure of rest that is in alignment with what you have designed and with what you have created. God, it's so easy for us to go through our week and and try to fill it with more tasks and more responsibilities. And in so doing, we, we miss an opportunity to make this statement, to be reminded of all that you desire for us by the way that you've created us. And so I pray that each and every one of us would look to the cross, God, that we would look to the hope of the resurrection and that we would see that you have called us to an eternal rest in Jesus Christ and that that would be the governing force of our souls. God, I'm grateful for a church like this. I'm grateful to be back home with brothers and sisters and ask that you would continue to lead us as we seek to glorify you in all that you've put before us. And pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.